So I have some things uh, to celebrate and then some things to admit. First of all, I want to welcome back the Ecuador team. Uh, Great to have them back all safe and sound, or at least uh, a good portion. I think we have a couple folks still down there braving the uh, tempting volcano, but uh, already uh, some phenomenal stories uh, from the trip and uh, anxious to share some of those with you guys. But uh, as the Ecuador team was coming back, I was actually reminded of uh, a strange thing I did on one of our Ecuador trips. Um, so have you, uh, have you guys ever, you guys know the NCAA tournament, right? Okay. They, they break down a bracket that looks like this. Uh, uh, so, you know, you kind of, you, you place teams against each other. And, and so I started like looking at the jungle of Ecuador and I started thinking to myself, okay, like of this Ecuador team, and there were about 30 of us on the team, I said, what if we put each other head to head? And the question was, who would survive in the jungle all by themselves, Right. So, and I didn't, re- I didn't like think it all the way through, like I didn't think of what would happen interpersonally in, in the situation, but so what we did is we took all 30 people and we put them on a bracket against each other, okay? And, and so one by one, uh, you know, people would stand up in the bus and we'd be like, all right, here they are, you know, like, who, who do you guys think would survive? Well, I, did, I didn't really, I didn't think people's feelings would get hurt, but mine got hurt, you know what I'm saying? Like, I didn't last very long, okay? I don't have a lot of survival skills. Um, so I was thinking to myself, I was like, okay, what if, what if we could do like a real-time bracket racket survival here tonight? Like, what if we could do that, okay? So actually, um, what I did is I had a friend of mine uh, write down as many possible names uh, as they were watching people walk in tonight, okay, just so we would, you know, have as many names here in the bucket as absolutely possible. I know you can't see the names in here, but there's plenty of pieces of paper, I promise. Okay, perfect. Uh, we got two names right here. Um, so I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to list these, these, uh, these people off, and then I'm going to ask these guys as I say their name. I think they're guys. We'll see. Uh, I'm going to ask them to come on up here. We're going to do this real time. Oh, seriously, Nice. Hey, how about Jason Streeby? Come on up. Is Jason Streeby here? Streeby, where are you at? All right, come on up. Come on up here, bro. All right, how about uh, Stephen Leffler? We got a Leffler up in here? Come on up. Give it up for Leffler as he comes. All right, just come stand right here, bro. We got a mic for you and everything. Come on up. Hey, come on. On the hop, bro. On the hop. Seriously, this is perfect. Like, of all the people we could have picked out of the trash can of love... We, we picked you guys. This is awesome. Okay. So here's what we're going to determine as a body. Which one of these two, in complete isolation, would survive? Well, what's really cool is we have a Marine here. Okay. So Leffler is a Marine. He's an artist at war. Um, you even have a tattoo that says make war, don't you? Okay. Yeah. You, right? And Streeby just got back from uh, Canada. Where were you at? Uh, no, Idaho. Idaho. Okay. <laughs> right? He just got back from Idaho's and survived. So, (laughs) there's no prep work here at all involved, okay? In 20 seconds, could you give people, you know, why why they would want to vote for you, isolated in the jungle, why you would survive, all right? We're going to start with the Marine, okay? No, no, start with the Marine. Marine's first. first. Marine's first. Marine's first, all right? Give give us like the 20 second, why, why we should... Why would you win? Why would you survive? Uh, two words, pure will. Pure will? Yeah. Okay. Nothing's going to stop me. Okay. I gotta Nothing. Do it. No bears. I got to do what I got to do. Bear, wolf, streeby, whatever. Okay. It's going down. It's going down. Zombie, right. whatever. 
Zombie. Oh, you threw a zombie in there. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. But the good thing is you guys are about the same height, okay? So we're getting a pretty even stature here. All right, so Sreebi, what's your argument? Give, give us, you know, again, just survived Idaho. I mean. Okay. Well, I've been vaccinated against everything on the planet, um, including um, malaria, um, everything that you're going to find in the jungle, um, including Marines. Um, I, was, I was in the Navy, so we got a, a Marine vaccination. Um, good, good. And then I obviously survived the Idaho wilderness by myself. Um, there were less malaria there, but um, the water was poisoned. Hey, I totally so. am short-selling this because you were in the Navy too. Yes. We have two veterans right up here. Well, not, are you still active? Okay, so yeah. two veterans. Yeah. All right, all right. All right, so I, I want everyone now to pray and discern. That's what I told everyone in Ecuador, okay? Pray and discern. We're going to figure it out by applause, okay? By applause, which one of these two strapping lads do you think would survive in complete isolation, all right? How many think Stephen Leffler would survive? How many Leffler does? Pretty strong. It's pretty strong. Yeah. <laughs> How about Jason Streeby? Any, any Streeby? That's about. I couldn't have scripted this better because I wanted a tie because I didn't want either of you to like go away and hate me forever for this. But I'm going to call it a tie. I'm going to say you both. I'm going to say you both survive. All right? Yeah. There it is. Give it up for these guys. Give it up for these guys. <laughs> Completely random. You guys can check the trash can later, I promise. A lot of names in there. <laughs> what are we going to do for a second service? We'll see. Um, <laughs> now, um, I, I, like, I don't claim at all to be a survivalist. And in complete isolation, uh, I, think I, would, I think I would struggle. Um, and, and I say that, um, but then, then simultaneously... My, my life says there are components of me that, that wants isolation. Um, when I think of isolation, an image like this uh, comes to mind. Uh, next slide. Like complete by yourself, uh, you being a tree at this point. Um, nothing around, no other like tree friends there. Um, it's, it's crazy, actually, how much we believe that the decisions we make, the things that we believe in, the life that we live, how much we believe in our heart that it's done in isolation. In other words, it's crazy to me how much we believe that all of the things that we do affects no one else. In other words, we would say things like this, like, look, I'm just, I'm like trying to figure out my story and, and, and figure out what, what I believe and figure out like what that means for me and this very, like we talked about last week, like this self-centric, isolated perspective. My decisions affect me, like I ultimately control my own, as we would say, a destiny. This uh, was the absolute precise uh, struggle in Corinth. Next slide. A Corinth, we have seen a clear case from Paul, has an immature and isolated view of three things. They have an isolated view, an immature view of God. They have an immature view of themselves. They have an immature view of others. Uh, it's clear to me that what Paul has been contending now for three chapters 
is that these individuals that have come to Christ in Corinth really believe that their view of God is their own. That it affects no one else, that it's their own. Uh, we see this kind of, that, that, that there's no other players involved. Uh, we see this kind of heart when Paul talks about the immaturity of Corinth in this. Here's what he says, but I, brothers, cannot address you as spiritual people. Remember this? Beginning of chapter 3. But as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now, he says, you are not ready. Remember, he plants the church in Corinth. He leaves. Apollos takes over. Remember what Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, and God gave the growth. But now he's writing this letter back because there's all kinds of divisions and factions and all kinds of things have gone awry. And what he's saying is, I fed you milk by, uh, back then, and I still have to do so because you're still not ready. You're still immature, he says in verse 3, for you are still of the flesh. Now, um, we've been in Corinthians now for, uh, for a minute, right, for a while, for some months and I do not feel like until this point that I fully understood what's going on. But all of a sudden, God has pieced so many things together in my heart that I cannot wait to share with you tonight. And it all begins with this statement. Next slide. Corinth has an immature and isolated view of themselves and others. Listen to this. Because of their immature view of God. What Corinth needs is a theological revolution. And what I believed growing up was when you started talking about theology or view of God, like you brought out all the, you know, all the people that just sat around and talked about things. Uh, so I, you know what, quite, uh, quite honestly, in the early parts of my ministry, when people would say theology, I would throw up in my mouth. Like I wanted nothing to do with it. I was like, what you're going to do is you're going to get together, you're going to talk about God, and then you're not going to live for God. So I'd rather not talk theology. But the problem is, as I have matured, what I've realized is my view of God is central to everything else, including my view of others and including my view of relationships. That is what is going awry in Corinth. They have an immature view of God a milk version of God, and so therefore they have an immature view of others and an immature view of themselves now in Christ. That's why Paul reminded the church in Corinth last week, all is yours in Christ. You are Christ, he says, and Christ is God. And so tonight uh, I, I have tremendous uh, faith in what God is going to do here in stirring and creating in our hearts for lack of a better term, a theological revolution. And that scares some of you because you're like, Mark, does that mean we're going to actually have to read the Bible? Yeah, that's pretty much what it means. Um, no talking about the things of God from a cultural perspective, but talking about God from God's own word. The problem in Corinth is their view of God is immature and has created divisions and chaos in the church. So that said, are you guys ready to take a journey with me tonight? A theological revolution. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Come on. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. If God can tonight change our view of Him by helping us see the problems in Corinth, the potential is 
unbelievable. We're going to study chapter 4, verse 1 to 13 tonight. This is how, verse 1, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Paul is going to be very direct first towards the immaturity of the church in Corinth's view of other people. And we've seen clearly they view ministers, Paul, Apollo, Cephas, as some is heralded as God and others they've diminished. And so what Paul says very bluntly is, this is how you should regard us. And when he says us, he's talking about him, Apollos, maybe he includes Cephas here as well. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now the language here is beautiful. The word servant in the Greek means under rower. Okay, uh, let me give you a picture just to help you understand. Okay, this is a boat that I drew with magic marker. And the, the lower part, the lowest tier of this is the under rower. Okay, so you have the top level, then you have the middle rowers, as it were, and then underneath it all, who don't see sunlight maybe uh, sometimes for days, in the, the galley of the boat, you have the under rowers. Now, what are the under rowers doing? What are the under rowers doing? Come on, what are they doing? Oh, 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 oh thank you. Um, well done. We shut up with our coffee tonight. You're feeling good, right? <laughs> yes, they're rowing, okay. But what are specifically they doing? They're listening to who? The captain, right? The master of the ship. Like, whoever's guiding the ship or whoever is, is down in the, the galley with them directing the rows, because if the rows are out of pace... You guys have seen, like, what's the Olympic rowing thing called? There's rowing, okay. Um, it's called Olympic rowing. <laughs> um, if they're out of pace, you guys have been on a pond before, right? If they're out of pace, like, the, the boat's not going to go anywhere. And so someone is commanding the rhythm and the pace of the under rowers. What Paul says is you need to think about us like that, that we're listening to someone. We're submitting to someone. We're, we're the lowest, maybe even he would say in this image, of the low. But he doesn't just use the word servant. Uh, next slide, look at how he continues the verse, okay? He doesn't just say servant. He also says steward, servants and stewards. Now, the word steward is, uh, we could say, the manager of a house. Uh, the word steward is for someone who's taking instruction from the owner of the home, and it's taking that instruction and then making implementation in the house. Two roles, both submissive, both relying on the master's voice, both subservient roles. Now he's talking about uh, Christian leaders, ministers, we could even say apostles or pastors. But I don't think that um, this verse 1 doesn't apply, like I think it applies to all of us. We're called ambassadors in the scripture. We're called to be humbled in the sight of the Lord. So, so think of us all, yes, including those who pastor and lead and shepherd. But think of all of us as called servants and stewards. And what are we servants and stewards of, he says in uh, the end of verse 1? The mysteries of God. The gospel. The beauty of who God is. Theology. We become servants 
to the mysteries, the awesomeness, the phenomenal story of the great gospel that says once we were disconnected from God and now because of Jesus, we've been reconciled and given relationship to the God that which we now serve. That's what we're servants and stewards of. Isn't that beautiful? It's crazy. So Paul diminishes himself. He says, look, 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 like this is who we are. We're, we're nothing more than this. And this is a cherished role. So take us off the pedestal, he says, or for others, maybe, you know, elevate us a little bit to the place that we are, and that's children of God as servants and stewards. He goes on to say this in verse 2, powerful statement. Moreover, it is required of students, or of stewards, that they be found, what's the word? Faithful. Now, um, does, he, does he mean this flawlessly? Does he, does he mean that... Uh, when God returns um, uh, to judge everything, which we'll see here in a second, if those stewards and servants haven't been perfectly faithful, if they're not found perfectly faithful, uh, what happens to us? Well, the amazing thing about Scripture is it says that He's faithful when we're faithless. But at the same time, please hear me on this. We cannot diminish holiness... Under transparency. In other words, and I've even seen some articles recently about this, there is, and I, I believe rightfully so, a tremendous uh, resurgence in Christian culture about being known and, and bringing people into your story and sharing your sin and, and being transparent and laying it all on the table. This is a good thing. If we hide in the darkness, like, that's not where sin is dealt with. It's dealt with in the light. However, if we become, for one iota, a community that has just learned transparency, but that isn't listening to the command, be holy, as I am holy, guided by the Holy Spirit, we're missing it. Are you with me? So if we just become pursuers in community of love and transparency, but diminish the reality that God has called us to something, we are missing it. We are called to be faithful, to be trustworthy in this context with the message, with theology, with view of God. Well, how in the world can, be, can we be faithful with the message if we don't know the message outside of cultural relativism or something that we heard someone say or some sermon that we took wrote notes on several years ago Paul escalating the understanding the right view of people he's saying listen listen we are servants and stewards and and servants and stewards are to be found faithful he says and then he he kind of drops a hammer here in verse 3 look at this but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, he says, I do not even judge myself, verse 4, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not there, uh, thereby acquitted. He says, it is the Lord who judges me. So basically what's happened in Corinth is all these teachers have come in, Paul, Apollo, Cephas, and what the Christian community has done is they've spent their time judging them. Oh, he's got a really nice voice. He's got a little bit of swag up there. I like the shirt that he wears when he throws down. Oh, did you see the way Paul wears, rocks his sandals? I mean, it's so pastor-like. You know, like they're... 
They're wasting their time judging people. Listen, I, I've told you guys my story before. I mean, I grew up in the church, probably was conceived in the church, all right? Like, like all I know is, the, is being in the confines of biblical community. And listen, like, never fails, right? You get around Christians after a worship gathering, and what do they talk about, right? At least in my past, it was so, hey, what, like, what'd you think of Pastor so-and-so, right? Well, I don't know. It's kind of boring, kind of put me to sleep. His analogy didn't make sense. It, it didn't come together. Like, they instantly begin judging, judging the pastor. Now, I'm not stupid enough to think that that doesn't happen in this body, right? Like, come on now. Like, like some of you are just bold enough to come up, right? And, and instantly say, hey, man, like, I don't know. You should think twice about how you do your hair next week. You know what I'm saying? Like, that, that was just not, no, I wasn't having it. It was a distraction, you know, like. Mark, you got to figure out what you're doing with your beard. Are you, are you bringing it in or not? Like, people have all kinds of conversations. I, I know, I know that some of the conversations leaving this space are judging me. I, I've spent all my life under that sort of um, premise and criticism. What Paul says is, uh, it's a small thing to me, which as a pastor, I appreciate. I appreciate his words. What he doesn't say is, I don't care. If I said I didn't care about what people thought of me, uh, I would be lying. Uh, it's a small thing, prayerfully, most days. Um, but I sit under the reality that my marriage, my parenting, my life, the other pastors with me here, like we're, we're judged and scripturally um, more intensely. But I appreciate Paul's words. It's a small thing. I'm not dominated by it. I'm certainly more interested in what the Lord thinks because it's him who judges me. What he's saying is stop wasting your time judging. What good is it bringing you or the body of Christ, he's saying this to Corinth, judging teachers based on preference? I would now say this corporately to the body, apart from gauging or judging pastors or ministers or teachers, we are wasting our time, distracted from mission, spending the majority of our minutes judging one another. You're like, Mark, but, but aren't we like called to understand? Listen, there's a big difference between judgment and discernment. Judgment throws the gavel. Right, like inherently in the word, that's what judgment does. I think this about you and you can't change me. I believe this about you and this is where I'm at. Like judgment throws the gavel. Picture a judge on his stand hitting the, you know, guilty or innocent plea. Like that's, that's what judgment means. Discernment, discernment, guided by the Holy Spirit, sifts out the light from the darkness discernment doesn't throw the gavel, leaves, listen, room for grace. Listen, think of the power if all of a sudden in right view of others we believed what Paul is commissioning the church in Corinth and we said, yeah, yeah, what if we just stopped wasting our time judging one another? What if we left that to who is really the judge? And what if we became very, very discerning so that we could actually walk alongside people 
and in love and in grace, instead of judgment in our hearts, we could help our brothers and sisters in Christ in their journey. Paul would think, like, that's beautiful. Discern through the Spirit. Speak the truth in love. Walk alongside your brethren. Like, share the difficult things with mercy and grace. But what the sermon does is it doesn't throw a gavel of all the time or ever. It, it leaves room for God to do what God does. And what I'm fearful of in the church, just like Corinth, is these people are saying, no, I'm done. I'm done with Paul. I'm done with him. He's this, he's that. No, I, I, like I can't even hear him anymore. Like he just, no, like there, there's no more. I'm only going to listen to Apollo. So Paul, when you come back here, Apollos is my man. That, that's what he's saying. And in doing so, do you understand what happens? Believers distracted from mission spend all of their time inwardly judging one another. And oh, when someone from the outside comes in, here comes the heap of judgment. Last thing on this note, have you ever heard someone say you're judging me? When have you ever heard a believer say, you're discerning me? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because even, listen, even when a believer is discerning us, we still say they're judging us. Right? Like, that, that's our mode of operation. Because we think if we call out, hey, you're judging me, we think that, that then somehow it puts our sin on them. No, it's 1-800, your fault, Right? That very thing that you just said is my thing. Now you need to go check yourself. What if we started celebrating when people discerned well? JB, you here? Brzezinski, you here somewhere? Is he here tonight? No? Um, that's, that's good. Um, <laughs> one of our pastors here. I'm sure he's coming to the second gathering. Um, one of our pastors, Jeff, here has uh, a, f- a keen sense of discerning me. And uh, last, last week he sent me a text and a lot of things going on last week after just an unbelievable day at J-Day at Jefferson. He said, how you feeling? And I said, man, I'm doing great. And his text back was, you're tired. I was like, what? I, I just said I was great. He's like, I know you're tired. He's like, just, just admit it, man. Just say it. All right, brother, you're right. Like, you, just, you discern me. I didn't say you're judging me. He did well discerning me. There's a difference. When we as the church embrace that, guided by the Spirit, all of a sudden we mature in our relationships. So he goes on to teach this premise even more harshly, I would say. Look at verse 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. Could it be any more clear? Do not pronounce judgment. Judgment before the time, before the time the Lord comes back, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose, look at this, the purposes of the heart. This is is a tough passage to swallow. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Now, I want to make sure we're all understanding this. Romans 14 talks about we'll all stand before the judgment seat. I've always been troubled by that because I believe I'm a believer. And so I see scriptures even like this. You receive commendation from God. There's rewards. Has anyone else struggled understanding what that looks like? Like what is the reward system? We talked about it, you know, here a few weeks ago. Does God like get up there and I use Mike as an example. You know, does does he like pay us wages? Like what does this look like? So just on this point, I've done as much reading as I possibly can because it's certainly a mystery. But the best point I can come to 
is before the judgment seat, my sin is completely dealt with. Are we together? My sin and your sin in Christ is completely dealt with. Washed clean. If that's not true, then scripture is lying. Are we together? So when Jesus says it is finished, then that means it's finished. Then that means when I, when I stand before the judgment seat, Romans 14, all will stand there. When, when I stand before the judgment seat, I will be in that moment, different from what he said in verse 4, I will be acquitted. I will be seen as innocent. I will be released because of Christ. But then at that point, there, there is some scriptural uh, understanding that would say that the Lord in his discernment and his will and his direction will do some sort of rewarding. We're not exactly sure what this looks like. Uh, we're not exactly sure how this will look, and I'm thankful for that. It's not to put a carrot in front of the Christian to say, hey, you better shape up. Because when you get in glory, you know, all them crown, you know, you hear Christians say that, right? Oh, that's another jewel on my, on my crown. That's weird to me, right? Like, I, well, what do you mean, right? But again, at the same time, we leave the judgment to God. So when people come in, what happens is, I think a lot of times, is we're very, very quick to give them a name tag. And once that name tag label is put on people, it's very, very difficult for us to change that. Right? So we look at people, we do a visual gauge, a visual judgment. And then in our mind, we instantly put that name tag on them and we store that away. Oh, that person is like this. Do you guys understand with me how many people have walked out of the confines of the community of Christ because everyone in the body instantly name tagged them? Can I ask you this? What if you would have been name tagged? What if like the first time in all of your filth, you walked in and God just instantly wrote you off? God was like, nope. Like that, that, that sin is too great. That stuff is too far. I'm just, I'm done with them. Like I, I. We write people off, and at times it's as if we don't want them to receive grace. Are there people in your life that you don't want to receive grace? Hey, God, look, you can save anybody, but please don't save that person. Do you want the pedophiles to come to Christ? Imagine uh, the person... Maybe that's a non-believer in your life that has said the harshest things to you. Do you want them to come to Christ? Or in your heart of hearts, you're like, yeah, God, really, what would be great for them is hell, a whole lot of hell. Um, What Paul's trying to do to the church in Corinth is help them grow by releasing judgment. And what Paul understands, and what I want you to understand now, if the church releases judgment, do you know how much more time we have to be on mission? You guys understand that? Do you know how much more time we have? My heart is this. We're wasting time. Quick to judge, slow to discern. Quick to name tag, slow to give room for grace. And you know what happens then? You know what, you know what happens? 
then when man falls or disappoints us, we throw our hands up in the air. Instead, please hear this. What Paul is longing for the church to embrace, what I am longing for you to embrace, is we are a work in progress. All of us, right? Justified in Christ, being sanctified through His Spirit, growing, maturing, right? Well, maturation needs grace and mercy. And what Paul is saying is like when you raise even some of us as teachers up too high or when you push us down too low, you're writing us off. Think about what you're doing in the body of Christ. You're saying, well, you need to be here. And if you're not here in three days' time, then you're, you know, then you're half a Christian that you should have been. I am tired, and I'm on a big mission right now, of getting the word should out of the Christian language. Like, just take it out. Because what should does is it puts burden. All the language I want to use is now in Christ I can. Now in Christ I get the opportunity to obey. Now in Christ I can love and be loved. You guys, instead of you should love, you should not judge, you should. Like, the, the word should should just be added to the Christian ex on the Open's Day Dictionary, right? So do you understand, like, I, I finally feel like I'm understanding Paul's angst against Corinth. You are wasting time. I came here, you received the gospel, and you're spending all of your, all of your time judging people when we know for sure there is one judge. So rest in that, he says. Rest in that. So before I move on, like, what if right now you just, you just in your own way were like, God, I, help me be discerning. But God, please take the gavel out of my hand, the perceived gavel. And I'm telling you what right now, listen to this. It would repair and restore relationships in this body. Because there are relationships where the gavel has been thrown, where you've name-tagged, and maybe you never spoke it, but now you've cold-shouldered. There is not one person in the body of Christ, and I'm even going to extend that to the non-believers that we walk with, there's not one person that ever deserves a cold shoulder. There's not one. And yet, at times I've seen the body of Christ exist solely in that. We don't want to deal with our problems, so listen, we'll just ignore it and act like we don't even know each other. Like the first girlfriend that you broke up with in seventh grade hallway, right? You're like, just put your head down. I hope she doesn't see me. Right? Paul's passionate about this in Corinth. So now he turns beautifully to some powerful, powerful teaching when he says this in verse 6. Look at this. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. Um, <laughs> this, is, this is just awesome. What he's saying is, listen, as a servant and a steward, I'm listening to my own stuff. I'm not like up here harping at you, Corinth, and then going out judging everybody. He's saying, I've applied it perfectly, no, but as a work in progress, as a person being sanctified, I, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us, hello, not to go what? Come on, come on, come on, not to go what? Beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up 
in favor of one against another. You see that? Come on. That you may not go beyond what is written. Hello. Hello. The most dangerous thing in the church is when we judge people not based on God's word. Not only do we throw the gavel, but we actually create extra scripture and then throw the gavel on that. Yeah, actually, I know the, the scripture doesn't say forgive and forget, but you didn't forgive and forget, so, you know, gavel on your face, right? And then we go beyond the word. We create our own word. This is why maturation is a must. This is why believers interested in theology is quintessential. If you don't know the word, you will think what the culture says about the word is the word. You have nothing else to go by. You're watching, you know, the, the, the lady, the talk show, The Talk. Have you seen this? Have you guys seen this, right? It's like a modern day, what was the old one? Um, come on, what was the old, The View? Yeah, it's like the new one, like The Talk, you know? And at the end, I, I, just, I just saw this today sitting in the barber. At the end, uh, at the, true story, at the end, they say, and remember, it's never too late to have, and the whole crowd says, cheesily, The Talk. It's like the stupidest thing ever, right? But you'll hear something on The Talk. Or talk show, or you'll even hear, that's right, Jimmy Fallon, right? Whoa, like, people are like, whoa, don't step to Jimmy. Don't step to Jimmy. You can step to the talk, people. Don't step to Jimmy. Listen. If you don't know the word, you start hearing cultural adages. And then pretty soon in your mind, you start to embrace them as scriptural truth, even though it's not in the word at all. And you have no means of defending that or arguing that based upon God's word because you're not interested in it. Have I had times of this? Sure, I've believed all kinds of things that people have said that have been beyond the word. What Paul is saying is, listen, I've applied these things so that you can watch us and not go beyond it. The word is good and errant. It's God's word. You need to stay in it. Now, are you, are you guys ready for this? This is crazy. Paul gets insanely sarcastic. True story. I picture him right now riding to this church in Corinth, and I picture a red face. He's been fueled by the Spirit, and now he just goes off in sarcasm. So if some of you have said, look, I'm just sarcastic, and you've always wanted, you know, your biblical reference, here you go. Okay, here you go. All right? Look at this in verse 7. For who sees anything different in you? Three rhetorical questions. What do, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? This shows the wrong view of God. He's saying in three rhetorical, sarcastic statements, everything you have, remember he, what he said last time, everything you have is, is in Christ. Everything is a gift. Everything comes to you. Everything is grace. There's not one thing that isn't. I told you guys last week in, in teaching my kids about giving, like that's the, that's the core principle. This isn't my stuff. This is, this is God's stuff, and he has in his grace shared it with me. And so I don't share with God my stuff. I, I give God his stuff. He keeps on with his sarcasm. This is hilarious. Look at this, verse 8. Already you will have, you have all you want. Okay? Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. I hope you guys, like, he, he's not, like, saying this in a, in a way that's like, you're kings, you're awesome. No, he, 
He's saying like, listen, you, and we could say gently, you morons, you know, like everything you have is grace. And now uh, in large sarcasm, look at, at the end of verse 8, and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. But basically what he says is like, we, we hope that the Lord's come back in glory, that now somehow you're in glory reigning with the Lord, that we could share in that with you, he says, that his sarcasm goes on, verse 9, look at this. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. So in his sarcasm, what he's saying is, you're kings and we're the least of all. Obviously, so they're, they're starting to see through the conviction of the Holy Spirit that they have puffed themselves up. They have a wrong view of themselves. They have a wrong view of teachers, a wrong view of God, a wrong view of themselves. He says, we become a spectacle. Now, anyone appreciate the movie Gladiator? Okay. One female. It's good to hear. The word spectacle here uh, in the Greek, and I, I've longed to share this with, in, a, in, a, in the context of a Greek setting. What he's saying is, we're, we're the spectacle. Now, a spectacle in, uh, in, in ancient times would have been the last people as a warrior, as a, a king, as a, a leader comes in off victory in battle. Okay, he would triumph in a parade through the city. Uh, maybe even uh, in, in some cases Rome, he would try, he would come in with his parade. And the very last people, the riffraff as it were, they were going to be part of a spectacle. Because what would happen is all of the prisoners would still be paraded through. And then these people would, would come and be brought into the Colosseum and they would be slain by the gladiators or by the beasts, either one. So Paul is liking, likening himself and the other apostles or maybe even specifically Apollos here as these people who are being paraded through who will be put in the Colosseum and will die. Uh, how's that for encouragement? Again, I, I, it's so interesting to me that people can still believe in the prosperity gospel when there's passages like this. When Paul, like, is embracing, like, look, I, I, don't, I don't know when, but I'm watching brothers of mine die. I'm hearing about their deaths. I'm, I'm seeing their deaths, and I just, like, I'm the last of all. My life is done, he's saying. For I think that God... Uh, has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. And, and who is he taking after here? How about Jesus? Crown of thorns on his head, paraded through the city as a, as a spectacle, as a criminal, crucified in death. Verse 10, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. Sarcasm. We're fools. <laughs> Well, we're the called apostles, you and your immaturity. Oh, yes, yes, you are wise. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, the end of verse 10, but we in disrepute. Verse 11, to the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, he says. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still, he says, like the scum of the world, the refuse 
of all things. Why is Paul taking this approach? He's hoping, praying, that through the Spirit of God, these immature believers would be pierced in their pride. That they would step back and see their immaturity. And that in seeing their immaturity, they would be put on a new journey of pursuing the character of God. On becoming, we could say, theologians. Let's say it this way. Next slide. Corinth has an immature and isolated view of themselves and others because of their immature view of God. Let me make sure we all understand this. Your view of God drives your relationships and your view of self. Everyone, believer or not. What you believe about God shapes what you believe about others. If you're not a believer, okay, then your views about who God is or what God is or what God isn't shapes how you view people. First John 4 says, we love because God loved us. We show ourselves as children of God because of love. In other words, because of our view of God, what that has meant now is now we love others. There's evidence to our view of God. So tonight, we could say that every single person in this room is fleshing out their immaturity or maturation or growth in your view of God and it's seen in your view of yourself and your view of others. Whew. Uh, anyone here ever battle insecurity at all? Anybody? Okay. Yeah. And, you know, the insecure don't raise their hand, right? Um, we, actually, we go like halfway, right? You know. I hate my insecurities. I hate them. And, and I've, always, I've always said, listen, I've always said that my insecurities or uh, anyone's porn issue or anyone's marital issue or any, like any, I've always said anyone's issue, like it comes back to a Jesus answer. I still stand on that, but, but I feel like now there's a completely, there's a different understanding. The reason why it's a Jesus answer is because my view of God will drive my struggle or lack thereof with insecurity. Amen? My view of God. Now, I used to think that theologians sat around and talked and never were on mission. But now I'm, I want to like help redefine a theologian. Okay? A theologian, and specifically one that's interested in the things of God, is learning about God, is growing in the understanding of the character of God, and that growth is showing itself in life. And so then the theologians are showing themselves by the things that God is doing in and through them. My insecurities come back to my view of God. God isn't enough. God isn't faithful. I need something more. There's comforts that he's not giving me that I need to ask. I, I'm hoping that someone will approve of me because God's approval, God's love isn't enough. Do you guys see what I'm saying? It all comes back to that. Let's say it this way, next, next slide. Our theology not only describes our view of God, but also defines our view of ourselves and others. Mm -hmm. 
All right, so now all of us are somewhere in all of this journey. This was the issue in Corinth. Immature view of God, and now an immature expression in relationships and view of others. So next slide, let's talk about this then. How do we mature in our theology? So, so do, we, do we have now, like, do, do we set up, you know, do we call something a, a theological meeting, and, and now we, we gather and we say, okay, we're, we're going to gather everyone and we're going to talk theology. There isn't anything else we talk about. Do you guys see what I'm saying? Theology, the character of God, our view of God is what we talk about all the time. We don't need to add more meanings. What we need to understand, and let's start with number one, how about we just begin here? How about we start asking God for a passion to grow? Right, because some of you tonight are passionless about growth and maturity. You're like, I don't want to involve any more effort in learning any more about God. I already know enough about God. But your life says no. Your life says no, no, I, actually, I think there's more to learn. And shouldn't that excite us? That there's mysteries of God that, have been, uh, that haven't been unearthed yet to, to our heart. That there's things about the character of God that we've yet to understand or come to. Does that not excite anyone else? And listen, for those that aren't, I, I get it, I, I understand, but, but if you think that somehow, like right now, like some, some switch in the back of, you, you know, your head is just turned on and you're going to leave here and say, oh, I want to be a theologian, ask God for it. God, give me passion, a renewed passion right now, God, to pursue you. God, please help me grow. I long to grow. Uh, maybe some of this relational strife that, that I've been involved in comes back to my view of God. Maybe all this struggle that I have in my mind with my insecurities, like, like maybe every day when I look in the mirror and I, and I battle who I am, God, God I want to grow. I want to learn more about you. So I look in the mirror and I don't think so much or so low about myself. I exalt you, God. The impact is tremendous. Let's ask God for a passion for it. Number two, check this out. We have to read the word differently. Differently. This isn't a textbook of niceties. It's not a book that, you know, caresses and, and soothes our hearts. And if you think it's that, then you read chapters where God wipes out man, women, and child, and you're like, that's not so caressing. That didn't make my day. I'm not going to put a bumper sticker of that on my car. God wipes out man, women, and child. So, so what do we do then with this unbelievable living book? We read it to learn about the character of God. Mark, why should we read the Bible? To learn about the character of God. But, 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 but Mark, what about me? Our theology shapes everything else. Are we together? So here's what we've done. What does the Bible say about me? And we're going to let that shape our theology. You see how backward that is? What does the Bible say about me? How does the Bible caress me? What does the Bible have in there for us so we can have little nuggets of truth? Instead, what does the Bible say about God? What does the Bible teach us about God? What does the Bible say about His character? We get to teach our kids to read the Bible that way. Instead of exalting Daniel as some epic hero or David as some tremendous warrior or Paul as some ridiculous apostle that no man may touch, we get to say there was a Paul, but there's a better one, and that's Jesus. 
There was an Abraham and he was a father and he had a whole lot of kids, but there's a better Abraham, there's a better Adam, there's a better me as daddy. It's Jesus. We get to teach our kids about the character of God, reading the Bible to learn about this, this good, good father and this wrathful God and this only judge God and this merciful God, and on and on and on. And some of you, that's been the story of your life. You open the book, flip to a page, hope the wind opens to the right page, and then you say, what does Ecclesiastes chapter 2 mean for me? And then what's happening is that is shaping your theology. And for some of you, that theology is God doesn't exist. I don't hear him, I don't see him, I'm not experiencing him. Lastly, these are just some things to start with. How do we mature in our theology? We pursue God-centered conversation. Everything we talk about, why not? We, we already waste time judging people. Why don't we get rid of all wasted time? We're like intentionally pursuing character of God kind of conversation. Every Ecuador trip we lead, like I say one thing, listen, when you get home from this trip, people are going to say, how was it? And, and they're going to mean like, how was the food? And they're going to mean, like, did you sleep in a tent? And they're going to mean, did you see any snakes? And they're going to mean, did you see a tarantula? Instead, you tell them what you learn about the character of God. That's what you tell them. Listen, think about it. What if every conversation with every believer you ever interacted with for more than 30 seconds, somehow you both left that conversation being encouraged because the Spirit was speaking through the both of you, exalting the character of God. How could we not then live our days, the scripture said, be joyful always? How could we not then be encouraged? How could we not then not just be soothed, but be nourished? Not chomping on milk anymore, but solid food. I'm calling us to a theological revolution. These are just some, some places to start. But now all of a sudden I step back and I, I really understand, like, Corinth was a hot mess because these people have not matured. And so they built their entire lives and ministry structures and the church around a poor view of God. It's no wonder why they're divided. So what does that mean for you tonight? Let's stand together, come on. We aren't isolated. We aren't isolated. Believers in the room, you're part of a body. And your view of God affects others. Folks who have come here who have no comprehension of, of God or you've walked in here in confusion. The amazing thing about God's grace is that you can leave here a son and a daughter. Maybe, maybe part of your fear of his character was that he would find you out. Let me tell you, he already knows. It's not finding you out. He, he, you've already been found out. You've already been found out. But tonight, grace can be yours. The scripture says that all who call on the name of Jesus will be saved. Everyone. To call on his name. Through the blood of a cross. 
And three days later, Christ walking out of the tomb, our theology got to watch God in flesh and blood. And it's through that blood that we have redemption. It's through that blood tonight we can say, God, give us a picture of yourself that we could never run from again. God, shape our hearts around your character. God, make us theologians. Let's worship. Come on.